Well, it's a delight to stand before you this morning and be able to share the scriptures with you. And let me uh, rat out uh, Pastor Rod. Uh, uh, he had comped to him a trip to Israel. Isn't that incredible? So he's been there all week, and uh, I'm sure when he comes back, he will use uh, that experience to share with us until Jesus comes again, or whatever happens for between now and then. But he, there'll be so many good things, and it'll come out in his sermons. And I am just delighted to be able to work here at the sanctuary and get to preach here. You know, uh, I was sitting there, and uh, we were singing together. And it is as if you are kind of have a transcendent moment. It's like you're in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a great thing to experience? And, you know, it's, it's only something that we experience together. Uh, I'm, you know, often alone, and I love to worship the Lord. But there's something just profoundly different when uh, uh, we're being led in songs that glorify the Lord. Um, <clears throat> As you know, uh, because Pastor Rod brags on me a lot, and I'm supposed to be humbled by that. <laughs> and he, let me say it this way. Let me tell you about Uncle Lloyd Looper. Uncle Lloyd Looper is Anita's uncle. He's been with the Lord for some time now. And I'm quite competitive by nature. And so uh, Lloyd was from Arkansas, and he had just a, just a southern draw. And you had to listen very carefully to what he was saying because I'm a Southern California boy, and although my folks were from Oklahoma, their accents weren't quite as strong as Uncle Lloyd's. And, uh, but Lloyd did two things. Lloyd worked crossword puzzles. I was probably about 23 years old, and we were sitting talking one day, and then he told me, he said, uh, I've read the Bible through 14 times. Well, he threw it on the marker. <laughs> if Uncle Lloyd could do it 14 times, I'm sure I can do it 15 times. <laughs> and I developed a habit then of reading the Bible through every year. So I'm 83 now, so that'll give you a little uh, understanding of the number of years that I've had my nose in the book. And at my reading pace, uh, I, I read through the Old Testament two and a half times a year, and I'll read through the New Testament four and a half. Four and a half times. That's just the way it rotates. The little thing that I've followed forever and ever and ever. So we're talking now 50 years later. So we've been through there a number of times. And one of the magnificent things about reading through the Bible over a course of time, you see how thematic it is. Keep in mind that that book you hold in your hand, it took 1,500 years to produce. It had 40 different authors. It was written in at least three different languages, and there is a theme. Now, how do you do that unless it's being orchestrated by God? And if that's God's book and I'm a Christ follower, what does that say to me? What do I do with that? Do I just throw it on the shelf? Do I just ignore it? Or do we find it's vital to our lives? And so... Let me twist your arm, stick you with a hat pin, <laughs> do whatever I need to do 
to encourage you to put your nose in the book, read it year in and year out, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to see a theme. And the theme, in a simple word, is Jesus. You find Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is all through the book if you will look for him. And after all, isn't Jesus what life is really all about for us who have been born from above? And can you ever know him too fully? Certainly not in this life, but you can grow and grow and grow, and you nourish your soul by the word of God. Well, I'm saying all of that as a preface to what I want to speech, uh, speak to you about this morning. If you were to begin in Genesis, and you work your way to Calvary, to the cross, what you're going to find is that the creation story, the story of the fall, you're going to discover the Tower of Babel, then you're going to dis uh, discover uh, uh, the man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham's story will continue, and it will continue to our day, really. But uh, in the book of Genesis, we find Joseph, and Joseph uh, has brought his family to Egypt, and God has spared them alive during a great famine. But the, real, the Israelites, the family of Abraham, spend the next 400 years in Egypt. And God had prophesied that. Little boy's born. His name is Moses. And Moses uh, is loved by his parents. But the king of Egypt has decreed, because of the rapid population in Egypt of the Israeli people, that all the male baby boys have to be put to death. But his mama loves him a whole lot. And so she takes a basket. She waterproofs it. And she puts that little baby boy in a basket. And as little babies are apt to do, he's in the reeds and the princess, the daughter of the king, comes to the waterside and she hears the baby cry. And mama's heart's touched by the cry of the baby. So she takes that baby home. She raises that baby and he becomes the prince of Egypt. His name means taken from the water. That's Moses. Forty years of age, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite, and he murders the guy, kills him, buries him in the sand. Shortly thereafter, he sees two Israelis having a fight. He tries to break the fight up, and the Israeli says to him, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses runs away runs away to the desert, to the wilderness, and there he spends the next 40 years of his life tending sheep. And then God speaks to him. And I want to use you, Moses, to deliver my people. So you travel over into the book of Exodus, and you celebrate the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then there's 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. As I said, I'm 83 now. Moses started his best work at 80, and then he passed away at 120. It looks like to me I've got, what, another 27 years? Uh, I hope not. 
<laughs> it's too sad to see all your friends die. <laughs> Does his best work. Isn't that marvelous? And then we come to the book of Joshua, and that's where we're at now. So let's open our text, and we're going to go to the eighth chapter of the book of Joshua. Let me do a little more historical work with you. Joshua, as we have studied so far, has brought them to the edge of the river, the Jordan River. And, you know, waters part, people walk across on dry land. Next big event is the spies. Uh, they meet up with Rahab, and uh, there's the agreement between Ahab and the, Rahab and the spies, and we know all about her salvation and such as that. Then, uh, before much else happens, uh, Joshua meets a guy by the name of, he calls himself the captain of the host of the Lord, the armies of heaven. And many believe that's a Christophany, which is a, a theological way uh, describing an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And he says, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? And the captain of the host of the Lord says, neither. I'm the captain of God's armies. And you're standing on holy ground, take off your shoes. And Joshua does some faith time. Well, Shortly thereafter, there's a place called Gilgal. And all the males that came out of Egypt, 20 years and older, along with all the females, they died in the wilderness. And if you do the math, uh, other than Joshua and Caleb, everyone that crosses the river is 60 years or younger. So it's a very young, young group of people, and probably about 3 million strong. And so... Oh, what happens at Gilgal, there's uh, the covenant of Abraham is reestablished, and the males are all circumcised. After that, the walls of Jericho fall, and it's a great, great victory, and uh, things are going well. There's a little town called Ai, just a small, small town, and Ai uh, um, is next... Uh, um, the next city to be conquered after, after Jericho. So Joshua knows it's a little town. He sends 3,000 soldiers to Ai, and they lose the battle. In fact, 33 Israeli soldiers die in battle. Well, Joshua is so upset by that. feels like God's forsaken him. He's like we are when things go south. Where are you, God? And he's on his face. And God says, get up. Get up. There's sin in the camp. And one of the most sobering passages of Scripture is found in the seventh chapter, where a man by the name of Achan has taken something that belongs to God from Jericho, broken the law of God. He takes a Babylonian garment, takes some silver and some gold, and he hides it under his tent. God says there's sin in the camp. And so they come family by family by family, and Achan owns up to his sin. The Bible talks about 
the strange work of God. What is this strange work of God? I would say it's his wrath. The normal work of God is grace and mercy. And you and I sit here this morning because of the grace and mercy of God. His strange work is his wrath. And if you travel over to the New Testament, you find a similar story. It's in the fifth chapter of Acts where a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. It's theirs to do with what they want, the money. Bring a part of the sales as an offering, but they lie. They say this is the total. Peter says to them, why have you chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit? And they both fell down dead. And it's interesting, it's a whole new movement coming into the land of promise under Joshua, and it's a whole new movement after Pentecost where God is doing a rich thing amongst his people. But it's a warning to us, it's a reminder to us that God's primary work is grace and mercy, but you don't want to be exposed to the wrath of God. And that is why we so desperately need Jesus Christ in our lives, because by nature we are children of wrath, and we need rescue. So we come to this story, uh, and I've leapfrogged, and Pastor Rod said I could do that, and it's Communion Sunday, and I thought this uh, text fit well. So let me get this up close here. Introduce the subject before I read, it to, uh, read the scripture to you. I want to talk to you about coming out of the shadows into the light of the sun, S-O-N. And uh, let, let me set it up with a, an experience that I had when I was 22 years old. Uh, I'd heard about Yosemite since I was a little boy, but my family never got there. Indeed, I'd been married about a year, and a bunch of us went camping at Bass Lake. We borrowed a boat. You know who the boat belonged to? I'm going to throw a name at you. Chuck Smith, <laughs> pastor of Calvary Chapel. I borrowed his water ski boat. And you know what? It was a crummy boat. <laughs> We couldn't get the thing to run. <laughs> Fortunately, our other friend had a boat that worked. <clears throat> My brother-in-law had a, a, a 1955 Chevy 210 station wagon. And I remember sleeping on the ground. The girls slept in the, the back of the station wagon. And we were young. You didn't really care. You were just having fun. But it was going to be a grand journey into Yosemite. So uh, we piled as many as we could get into the, the station wagon, and my friend Bill and I, we sat on the tailgate with the, with the back of the, uh, on the back of the, 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 van, uh, the uh, station wagon, and off we go. Now, I don't remember exactly how far it is, but you see the sign that you're entering Yosemite National Park uh, quite a while before you get to the park proper. And so we're going through a wonderful forest, and it's, it's, it's a nice journey. But I'm anxious to see Yosemite. And we finally come to the tunnel on the south side. You know the tunnel on the south side. You go through the tunnel, and you just come out to that parking area. And it's one of the grandest sights in all of the world. Now, I've traveled to a lot of countries, and I've seen some beautiful stuff. But I don't think there's anything any prettier than Yosemite. Now, on that day particularly, it was a beautiful 
blue sky. Uh, the sun was reflecting off of El Capitan. You could see Half Dome. Uh, a bridal uh, Vale Falls, they were full. Yosemite Falls were full. Water's coming down uh, the Merced River. I would like to be there right now. Just beautiful. Well, I, I want to share that with you. And then one other thought that <laughs> in the, uh, I think it's uh, just before Thanksgiving, I'm going to have cataract surgery on one eye. And then just before Christmas, I'm going to have it on the other eye. And I think I'm going to be able to hold my Bible a little lower. <laughs> and I'm going to be coming out of the shadows into the sunlight. But what we want to see here is we're coming into SO in light. So let me read this for you, these few verses, beginning in the 30th verse of chapter 8. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. An altar of uncut stone, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sanctified uh, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Oh, probably what he did, he probably plastered the stone and was able then to etch the Ten Commandments in the plaster. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourners as well as native-born, with the elders and the officers and the judges, stood on the opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the people of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Three points I want to make this morning about what it means to come out of the shadows into the light of the sun. Again, S-O-N, the sun. Uh, let me first I talk to you about a sovereign, supreme authority. And it's bound up in names. Joshua, the Hebrew word is Yeshua. And our Messianic, uh, Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters, they, instead of saying Jesus, they will say Yeshua. As I said earlier, Moses means taken from the water. And when you look at the authority that God vested in these two men, it's incredible. We could spend all morning just talking about the miracles that came at the hand of Moses. Also, Joshua. Think about 
Moses taking his rod and parting the Red Sea. God's Spirit gave him the courage, the grace, and the authority to part the Red Sea. Think about Joshua. He will command the sun to stand still and stands still in his place. Amazing authority. But it's delegated. It's not innate. In the fullness of time, the Son of God will come. And though his name can be translated and transliterated, Jesus, Yeshua is his Jewish name. Jesus is his English name, which is the derivative of his Greek name. But what we know about Jesus is that his name is above all other names. And someday every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. What else we know about his name is that he has given us a de delegated authority that whatsoever we ask in his name, it shall be done. And of course, that's because... Uh, and only when we have aligned our desires with God's desires. So there is an authority that we have in the name of Jesus. I want you to think with me about who this Jesus is. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without the Word, nothing was made that was made. What is John saying to us? He's saying to us that the word that was spoken in Genesis 1 was the speaking voice of Christ. This, the, the, the spirit that hovered over the earth that was being created was none other than the Holy Spirit. And God the Father was orchestrating all of this. I want you to think again about what Paul had to say about this man, Jesus. You find it in Colossians, the first chapter. And he says he is supreme above all. By the word of his power, all things consist and hold together. And he is the head of the church, and through him we have redemption. That's Jesus. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews says that he's the very image, the exact expression of eternal God. That's the Jesus that we discover when we come out of the shadows into the light of the sun. He has a name. He has a position. He has an authority. So what does that mean to you? What should that mean to me? Well, it means that he's equipped us with his name. We are called Christians. We are called Christ followers. We have been indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, it's expedient for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. And thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, I and my Father, we will come and we will dwell in you. 
And speaking of the Spirit, he will lead you and guide you in all truth. And then we read in Acts 1 or 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, then the Spirit came upon the disciples of Jesus in power and in might. And all of the book of Acts, you see the disciples exercising the name of Jesus. I'm telling you their power in that name. There's power to say no to sin. It doesn't have to govern my life. It's power to say no to my moods and my discouragement because there's the joy. There's joy in the Lord. I can call upon the name of the Lord. and He is a strength to my life. Some stories I, I'm a little bit shy to tell because people in our, our modern age and they have a hard time with it, and particularly to an American audience. But I can tell you about sitting in my office about 1970, about 1976, I suppose it was. A young lady came into my office. She was a freshman in college, and she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And so we were talking about her life and her plans. And I was telling her about who Jesus was, and place he needed to have in her life. And this very mild, slightly built woman, voice lowered, and a voice said, I don't have to listen to you. And I got chills, ran up my spine. I don't have to listen to you. Coming out of a, a little crawl. And I remember I have never felt more mighty I felt like Samson. I can push this building over. And I said, in the name of Jesus, you have to come out. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And there were those eyes looking at me again. I don't know. She came back a few times later. I don't really know fully what happened. But I know I encountered evil. And I exercised the authority of Christ. I have it in my home. I was going to bring it today, but I thought they might arrest me. I have a Bowie knife. It's about 1976. I was directing camps up by Little Green Valley for the Foursquare denomination, and we had about 450 kids there, high school kids and some uh, freshmen college-age kids. One kid, big guy, big guy, I remember that, and he wore a fatigue, you know, like a military jacket. And a counselor came up, and he said, Ron, I need you to come down to the cabin. He said, this guy's threatening people. So I went down, and I, I talked to him for a little bit, and then he, he got really hostile with me. I remember looking at his face, and again, that same spirit came upon me. And I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You calm down right now. And he did. That night, I preached my sermon. And afterwards, he came up to me. And I thought, I don't know what's, because I, I didn't know about the knife then. <laughs> he, he came up to me and he pulled that big knife out of his jack. And he said, I won't need this anymore. Here, Pastor, you have that. So it's one of the little treasures I've got at home. I went to Argentina, and then I went to Sri Lanka. 
And I've, I've, I've spoken against demons, and I've seen God them shudder at the name of Christ. But you know, that's extraordinary stuff. Where the name really worked for me is when I'm having lustful thoughts and I rebuke them in the name of Jesus. When I'm mad as hell and I want to get even with somebody and I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. When I'm afraid, my fears are overwhelming me. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. And Jesus always comes through. It's not a magical name. It's an all-powerful name. It's a name above every name. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God. And you have the delegated authority to use that name. Use it. Use it. Second thing I see in this text, and it's very powerful, is an altar upon which animals were sacrificed. The burnt offering was consumed on the altar. The only thing they would do, they would skin the animal and preserve the hide. But the animal was turned to ash. And it represented a consecration, a devotion to God. God, I want to be consumed by you. And I hope you know where I'm going with that. God, I want to be consumed by you. And it was also a peace offering which really meant a fellowship offering, and so was a grand barbecue. And the priests got to eat some of it, and the people got to eat some of it, and just, it was just great, great grand barbecue. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he offered up 22,000 oxen. Can you imagine 22,000 oxen? and 120,000 sheep. And all of the nation had gathered at the temple. And they just had a grand, grand party for seven days, honoring the Lord, devoting their lives to him, enjoying one another. Certainly there'll be a, a similar party someday. We'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all the saints from the past, and all the saints of the present, and all the saints of the future all the ones that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, they'll be there. Because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the consummate sacrifice. He is the consummate atonement. So we have supreme authority. We have consummate, uh, consummate atonement in Jesus. Think with me about that. John spent some time with Jesus and. It's John the Baptist, and Jesus comes to him, and Jesus said, I need to be baptized of you, John. Oh, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I have to be baptized by you. And so Jesus goes into the water, and he comes out again, and the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, settles upon Jesus. And then he will leave that place in the power of the Spirit of God. But John declares the second time when he sees Jesus coming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
it's this Jesus that Paul writes about when he says that uh, through him we have atonement. Through his sacrifice, we've made whole. We've made whole. And by his grace, we have standing with God. And there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The book of the writer of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who that person is. We can surmise. But he says that once for all, Christ was delivered up. Lest you think that you can add to what Jesus has done, let me dispel that. You can't improve on it. You are not saved by faith plus works. You are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. John writes in his little letter, he writes, I read unto your little children that you sin not, But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is Todd Courtney, a propitiation, big theological word. Let me define it. He's the satisfaction. Todd and I are buddies, and he, he gives me a bad time over theological words that are part of my vocabulary. You just learn to talk that way. You don't even know you're talking that way. But he's a satisfaction. That means God's satisfied with the, with the atonement. You don't add to it. You just receive it. You just rest in it. You find peace in it. Because it's a full, complete work. And I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again, probably the next time I preach. If you took all of the sins of the world from Adam until the very last man, which means billions and billions of people, there's such adequacy and sufficiency in the blood of Christ that it would atone for all of those sins if we would put our faith in him. So we see an altar. We see the authority that is bound up in a name, our names. But one final thought. There's something there called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is a box, a rectangular box. It's, uh, in, it has a, a gold uh, gilt around it. Um, and it's about 35, 40 inches long. It's about two feet wide and two feet deep. And inside the box, there's two tablets of stone on which God, by his finger, has inscribed the Ten Commandments. And wherever Israel goes in those days, they follow the ark. And it's symbolic of the presence of the Lord. Let me talk to you about the presence of the Lord and instant access that you have. When Christ was dying on the cross, you remember, the earth shook, the sky grew dark, And the veil of the temple was rent in twain so that all could have access. And we have become a kingdom of priests before the Most High God. And we have instant access. No longer do we have to go through 
uh, channels. Don't you just hate it when you dial a number and the first operator comes on and is a recording, refers you to the second recording, to the third recording, and finally, would you like to talk to a real person? I would have liked to just gotten there immediately. <laughs> but I want you to think about this and think hard about it. Anita's lying on the floor. Four times in the last six weeks, there's my wife that I love. She passes out in my arms, and I'm holding on so tight, I think I'm going to crush her ribs. And finally, I lay her down on the floor. And those big, beautiful blue eyes are vacuous. There's no life in those eyes that I can see, and because we're all both, we're both up in age, is this it? I don't know. And then I begin to pray. Oh, God, help us. And you just have to know this about me. Since I'm eight years old, I've been a Pentecostal through and through. And I begin to pray in the Spirit, and it goes something like this. Oh, And I look down, and life has come back into my eyes. And she is a spirit-filled person in that sense. She, too, speaks in an unknown language. We don't know what we're saying. Don't care what we're saying. But something from my gut is reaching out to God. I know that. And there's a presence of God that I know because I've exercised that gift since I'm eight years old. And God comes to our rescue. Oh, he doesn't deliver us from the problem. But he gives us mercy and grace to go through the problem. When I'm finally in heaven and when you're finally in heaven, no more pain, no more sorrow. Oh, we'll just be celebrating around the throne of God forever and ever and ever. But in the here and now, what a beautiful thing it is to God when we in the midst of our darkest hours cry out to him. Oh, God, be merciful. Oh, God, be merciful. And I know you could raise your hand on this because God has been merciful to you all of your life. Well, that's pretty much what I have to say to you, and there's more to be done this morning. So Matt's going to come, and he's going to lead us in our communion meditation. And he's going to kind of put a bow on what I've had to say to you because... The covenant that was being reestablished here is a covenant this morning that each time we celebrate it, we're renewing what our faith is, who our faith is in, and the significance of his atonement. God bless you. Thank you for listening to me.